You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the February 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. And I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to doctors Deva Mitchell and Merit Tabali, two of the authors of a paper titled How to Provide Sexual and Reproductive Health Care to Patients, Focus Groups with Rheumatologists and Rheumatology Advanced Practice Providers, who will review their recommendations for improving the provision of sexual and reproductive health for rheumatology patients. How do we then improve the pr- provision of sexual and reproductive health patients? You outline great ideas. And how would you, I guess this is a really hard, rank order your priorities. So if I were, if you were to start, what would you start with? I'll take that. I I would say that um, the house is on fire in the United States. Um, Roe versus Wade was a Supreme Court decision in the U.S. that um, provided federal protections for abortion care in the U.S. And it was overturned in June of 2022 in favor of uh, Dobbs uh, decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Um, And uh, now we do not have federal protections for abortion access. Um, states can individually uh, essentially choose their stance on abortion access or lack thereof. Um, and so I think what we're likely to see in the US at least are more pregnancies among patients with rheumatic diseases. And some of these pregnancies are gonna be unwanted. Some of them are gonna be medically ill-timed and occur when people's diseases are severely active. Uh, and some of them are going to occur when patients are prescribed teratogens. And in order to prevent these poor outcomes, I just want to emphasize, I think our practice as a subspecialty is going to have to change, and we're probably going to need to be more proactive and hands-on when it comes to addressing family planning uh, and anticipatory sexual and reproductive health care for patients with rheumatic diseases. And, you know, as our rheumatologists described, there are a number of barriers and challenges, but to your question, Dr. Silverman, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that we do have a role in providing some anticipatory sexual and reproductive health care to patients. Um, I think acknowledging that responsibility uh, is critically important. And I think, you know, perhaps we as a subspecialty, and I'm speaking very broadly here, have been somewhat passive about this, kind of assuming that our OB-GYN colleagues or our internal medicine colleagues will uh, deal with some of these issues. But I think because these diseases do have um, serious implications in some cases on pregnancy outcomes, as well as the medications that we prescribe in rheumatology and our and our core medications, methotrexate, mycophenolate, uh, cyclophosphamide have been mentioned, uh, can uh, have uh, uh, fetal toxicity, uh, we've got to be more involved. So uh, I would just say from my vantage point, when it comes to ranking um, what would be most effective or what would be most important for rheumatologists, I would say whatever you do, 
as long as you try to do something <laughs> would be better than not doing anything. At least acknowledging the responsibility and whether it's putting a brochure in your clinic or whatever it is that can help you to operationalize some aspect of sexual and reproductive health care. I think it's needed. I think it's necessary. And I think it's going to really help, um, you know, what really is a, a, a number of our patients who face these conditions. Want to add anything, Dr. Mitchell? Um, I don't think so. The only thing I would add is that, alluding to what Dr. Talapi was saying, a lot of these solutions could be incorporated relatively easy. I mean, somebody would have to take some time and energy to do it. But things like these pre-visit questionnaires, just to get an idea um, before these clinic visits would be uh, something that would be not take a lot of time, energy, or money to implement. Um, so some of these ideas I think could be implemented easier than others, um, but all of them I think could help in at least starting the discussion and engaging patients in this topic. I hope you enjoyed listening to doctors Deva Mitchell and Merit Talaba reviewing their recommendations from their paper and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with the authors of the paper and read the full-length article, which is available at our website at www.jroom.org. The development of inflammatory bowel disease is known to occur in patients with axial spondyloarthritis. The next paper I'd like to highlight is titled Inflammatory Bowel Disease Risks in Patients with Axial Spondyloarthritis Treated with Biological Agents Determined Using the British Society for Rheumatology Biologics Registry in Ankylosing Spondylitis, a meta-analysis. These authors examine the issue of the development of inflammatory bowel disease in patients with axial spondyloarthritis and whether treatment with biologics altered the incidence or the development of IBD. In this paper, McCarlin and colleagues use data from the British Society for Rheumatology Biologics Registry in ankylosing spondylitis or BSRBR-AS, followed by a systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature to determine in the, if the risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, varied between patients treated with biologic agents and other therapies, and whether the risk was higher in patients each treated with etanercept. The authors found that in the British Registry, exposure to biologic therapy was associated with an increased risk of IBD compared to non-exposed patients with an incidence rate difference, or IRD, of 11.9% with confidence intervals of 4.3 to 19.6. This finding of an increased IRD was replicated across observational studies, but not in placebo-controlled trials.
The authors then examined the issue of whether etanercept was associated with an increased risk as compared to other anti-TNF agents and found that data from the British Registry did not suggest an increased risk associated with etanercept, although data from trials did suggest a small but not statistically significant increase of IBD in etanercept users as compared to other anti-TNF agents. Therefore, it appears that patients with axial spondyloarthritis treated with a biologic likely have an increased risk for the development of IBD than patients treated with other therapies, but it is not clear whether the use of etanercept in these patients is associated with increased risk as compared to other anti-TNF agents. Table 3 of the paper gives the details of the comparisons of the meta-analysis for the risk of developing IBD for individual biologic agents. Next paper to highlight is entitled, Women with Psoriatic Arthritis Experience Higher Disease Burden Than Men, Findings from a Real-World Survey in the United States and Europe, and is by Gossick and colleagues. The aim of this cross-sectional study was to assess differences in clinical characteristics, disability, quality of life, and work productivity in males and females with psoriatic arthritis in clinical practice. A total of 2,270 patients with PSA were studied of which 46.1% were women, with 53.9% men, and patients were from five different countries in Europe and the U.S. In this cohort study, disease duration, disease presentation, and biologic usage were comparable between men and women while women reported a worse quality of life and more work activity impairment than men. Women did have a slightly but statistically significant lower burden of comorbidities than men, as measured by the Charleston Index, with a mean of 1.10 in women as compared to 1.15 men. This article is accompanied by an editorial by Dr. Daphna Gladman from the University of Toronto, Toronto, Canada, entitled Sex Effect in Psoriatic Arthritis. This editorial puts this article in context of other studies as she compares the results of this study to earlier studies and reviews the implications of the findings for clinical care and clinical trials. Dr. Gladman also points out the potential importance of fibromyalgia when measuring quality of life in patients with PSA. Fibromyalgia was not measured in the Gossick study. I recommend reading both the article by Gossick et al. and the editorial by Dr. Gladman. 
The importance of psychiatric comorbidity is becoming increasingly recognized in patients with SLE, and in particular when the onset is during adolescence. It has been estimated that one-third of adolescent patients may may have a psychiatric disorder in addition to their SLA. In their study entitled The Effect of Psychiatric Comorbidity on Healthcare Utilization for Youth with Newly Diagnosed Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, Davis and colleagues examined how the effect of the presence of a psychiatric disorder altered healthcare use within the first year following the diagnosis of SLA. They compared ambulatory emergency and inpatient visits in the year following SLE diagnosis in a cohort of 65 patients aged 10 to 24 years who were in the Clinformatics DataMart database. The data from this database was obtained from commercial health insurers and Medicare Advantage Part C and D users. Of the 65, 650 patients, 122 or 19% had a preceding psychiatric diagnosis, while 105 or 16% had an incident psychiatric diagnosis. The most common psychiatric diagnoses were depression and anxiety. The investigators found that in the cohort of 227 patients who had a psychiatric diagnosis, as compared to the cohort of 423 patients without a psychiatric diagnosis, there were more ambulatory and emergency visits, not only for psychiatric-related care, but also from non-psychiatric care in the, patient, in the cohort of patients with a psychiatric diagnosis. When patients were stratified into childhood onset, onset less than age 18, and adult onset SLE, patients with childhood onset SLE and a psychiatric diagnosis had increased health care use as compared to patients with adult onset SLE and a psychiatric diagnosis. Within the adult onset SLE cohort, those with a psychiatric diagnosis had an increased non-psychiatric emergency room visits than those without a psychiatric diagnosis. The findings of this study have important implications for the health care of patients, not only with new onset childhood SLA, but in fact, all patients diagnosed with SLA, and highlights the importance of psychiatric issues in SLA. In the article, the authors point out how to improve care, decrease overall care use, but also point out some of the limitations of using a private insurance database. In 2022, 
The American College of Rheumatology, the ACR, and the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology, ULAR, proposed new classification criteria for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or EGPA. The final paper to highlight this month is titled The Reclassification of Patients with Previously Diagnosed Eosinophilic Granulomatosis with Polyangiitis Based on the 2022 ACR-ULAR Criteria for Antineutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody-Associated Vasculitis and is by Pio and colleagues. In this paper... The authors examined if 51 patients who had fulfilled either the 1990 ACR criteria, the 2007 EMA algorithm, or the 2021 CHCC definition, fulfilled the 2022 ACR ULAR classification criteria for EGPA. Each patient was used the up-to-date criteria at the time of diagnosis. They found that the majority of patients, 44 out of 51 or 86% of their cohort met the 2022 ECR-ULAR criteria. Of the seven patients who did not meet the updated criteria but had been previously diagnosed with EGPA, three were classified as having MPA and one GPA using 2022 ECR-ULAR classification criteria for these diagnoses. The other three were now diagnosed as un classifiable vasculitis. Interesting, six patients met the ACR-ULAR 2022 classification criteria for both EGPA and MPA, and one for EGPA and GPA. The authors found that the two items one non-fixed pulmonary infiltrate and the other paranasal sinus abnormality, which were included in the 1990 classification, but not the 2022 classification criteria, accounted for the major reason for failure to meet the 2022 criteria as compared to 1990 criteria. In the discussions, the, out, the authors outlined their rationale for the suggestion that maybe the decision to eliminate non-fixed pulmonary infiltrates should be reconsidered. Of course, the findings of this study need to be reproduced on an ind- in an independent cohort, but the article does make for some provocative reading. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 51-year-old, previously a female, who within hours of receiving the Chad Ox-1 coronavirus vaccine, developed a high fever with myalgias, 
and six days later, a generalized urticarial rash and polyarthritis. Although she improved with treatment from NSAIDs, she did have recurrent episodes of fever and rash. A diagnosis of adult onset Stills disease was made. The images showed her, her urticarial rash, serial CRP, and theratin levels. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the February 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And please watch for my interviews with the authors of the highlighted article, not only this month, but a previous month, if you miss them. They are available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. I also want to remind you that this is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Journal of Rheumatology. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the March edition of Editor's Highlights, and please stay well.